Hey everybody, welcome back to a new episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards, and this is our first podcast of 2021. We've got a great guest today, but before we get into it, I want to let you know that we're planning an upcoming episode that's a little different than usual. We want to do an episode that's all questions from you about the world of wine. It could be a Schaefer question, it can be a general winemaking question, questions about storing wine, whatever you want to talk about. So please send questions to podcast at SchaeferVineyards.com. Once again, that's podcast at SchaeferVineyards.com. The sky's the limit. I'll try to answer as many of them as possible. Today our guest is Cyril Chapelet of Chapelet Winery here in the Pritchard Hill area of Napa Valley. Cyril's father, Don, started the winery in 1967, way before Napa was considered anything special. Cyril has seen it all and has a great story to tell, so let's get into it. Welcome back, everybody. Doug Schaefer with another episode of The Taste. Uh, very excited about our guest today. Longtime friend. We have a lot in common. We both are part of family wineries. We both have had, have and had wonderful fathers who founded our wineries. And we've, we're doing our best to follow in their footsteps. But the one thing we have in common that I don't have in common with any anybody else in the wine business is high school basketball. So this guy's name is Cyril Chapelet, chairman of Chapelet Winery. And I got to tell you, I first met him in the third or fourth week in January 1973. We had just moved out from Chicago. I check into school on a Monday morning. The guy checking me in, Cyril, it was Pat Delger. Remember Pat Delger? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, absolutely. He, and he was... Uh, admin and also athletic director and he goes hey you look like you play some ball i said sure so he said well you know let's go see the coach so we saw herb burkez the basketball coach he said go home get your stuff i came back practice with the team and i was on the team and I, that was varsity and i think you were jv you were a sophomore i was a junior but then we played another couple years together on varsity after that if i if my memory holds me well but welcome cyril um yes uh basketball i think was the first time we met each other and then uh and then have grown up together over the years and i think that what's interesting is that uh, both of our parents decided that this was where they wanted to be and mm -hmm. where they wanted to have their lives. And so my family, which was a family of five uh, at the time when my parents made this decision to move to the Napa Valley, uh, came from Southern California. And uh, it was my dad's dream and passion to have a winery and be in the wine business and make world-class Cabernet. Well, yeah, I want to ask you about that because in and, you know, I've, it's so much fun doing these things because I find out, even people I know well, I find out things about their lives I never knew. But your dad's dad, you know, tell me about that because he was, you know, a very successful guy. And then your dad did his own thing, too. But uh, let's talk about your grandfather. He was named Cyril, right? Yep. So I was named after my grandfather. And um, my grandfather uh, was uh, a Stanford graduate and his love of life was flying and he started flying in the army air corps uh right after college and uh, and he became a mail courier flying from burbank airport out to uh to arizona 
Tucson and Phoenix. And during that period of time, this was a few years after college, in the middle of the Depression, it was 1932, I believe it was, or 31, that uh, my grandfather uh, found out that the Lockheed hangars were going to be up for sale and the planes that were in production were up for sale. And my grandfather and my grandmother uh, got two other friends together and literally went to the courthouse and purchased the assets of the Lockheed company. And that became Lockheed uh, Aircraft. And my grandfather worked for the next 65 years for for Lockheed as the uh, on, on the board the whole time and as one of the owners initially. And that was his life. And he just, I mean, the stories are remarkable. The uh, the items that they created were unbelievable. And they became really a technology company that right. planes were, planes were there, was what they did. Planes and missiles and all kinds of stuff. But uh, one of the things that happened early on was when they started with the four of them uh, who, who bought the, assets from the bankruptcy court they made an agreement with each other because they knew they needed to raise money and they needed to go to the public markets that there would be no nepotism within the company so my father was never able to work there and neither were the grosses which was the other family who had bought the lockheed assets were not able to work for the company directly and so it wasn't that there was going to be a succession of family within that because they thought that nepotism could be an issue uh, with a publicly held company which i think we have seen over the years that that is an issue and it can be a challenge but if you own the company 100 percent, then you don't have that problem and they right. didn't own it because um, they had to go to the public markets and the company grew substantially to the lockheed martin that it is today and so um, my grandfather had a very successful career um, in uh, in the aerospace industry, and uh, and there's stories upon stories, and we could spend uh, hours just talking about that if you wanted to, uh, and and ha- be happy to. And sometime maybe when we're having a beer, we can uh, we can get into some of the interesting humorous stories of my grandfather negotiating with the Perones to sell planes to Argentina. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, things like that. So, so pretty cool stuff, but, um, well, I'll tell you what, we'll have you back. We'll do the wine thing today, but then we'll have, have you back and uh, we'll tell grandfather stories. Cause I've got a few. Too. Super. That'd be great. But that's fascinating well, though. What a, what a, how cool. Cause I mean, Lockheed, that's why I read this the other day is go Lockheed. Are you kidding me? Really? So good yeah. stuff. Good stuff. So yeah. you're, so, that's your granddad, and then your dad came along, and um, so he grew up obviously in Southern California. And then uh, where did he go to school? So my dad went to Pomona, um, the Claremont Colleges, mm-hmm. and um, he uh, he had a high school and elementary school friend of his, a gentleman named Ronald Wolf. And when they graduated from college, uh, they got back together and started looking at what could they do entrepreneurially, and uh, Ronnie had an interesting career because his family owned the Fox Theaters in Los Angeles. And Ronnie very quickly took over the concession business, which was the place to make money in a theater because you bought your tickets and that usually paid for the f- price of the film. But if you want to make money, you sold concessions. And he um, was running that. And one uh, one evening, uh, my parents got together when they were in their 
early 20s and uh, Ronnie had an idea and had met a gentleman who was making a machine in his garage that would make fresh hot coffee on demand. Hmm. And Ronnie thought, hey, that would be great for the theaters, but boy, that would be great for factories and other places. And so my father and Ron went down and met with the gentleman and they worked with him over the next uh, several months to build some structure around this machine and they put a vending machine basically around it and had a way of actually uh, making fresh hot coffee. And that was revolutionary in the uh, early 50s because coffee was made several hours ahead of time in a big brew facility and then trucked to your facilities. And by the time you drank your first cup of coffee at the office, it was already four or five hours old. This was revolutionary because this was a fresh cup of coffee you were getting. And so it was basically just a better mousetrap. And they were very entrepreneurial. Their company became publicly held and it was on the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, my father and Ronnie ran that company very successfully and built it nationally uh, over about a 12-year period of time. And at uh, after that, it was it became not as entrepreneurial and it became more of just mundane. So it became less interesting for the two founders to to drive the thing. So both of them decided to start seek out something else that they wanted to do. They were, I think, Ronnie was thirty six and my dad was thirty four at the time, mm-hmm. and my father uh, my father had uh, a, grown a, a bit of a passion for wine during the time and. And my father had a, a wine tasting group in Los Angeles that he had gotten to know. And they were uh, they were enjoying wonderful wines. And my father said, you know, this might be an interesting career. And so, <laughs> so he basically uh, started taking trips up to the Napa Valley to to look for land and look at the possibility. And what was interesting at that time, in 1966 and 67, there had been no new people coming to the Napa Valley. Right. There, there was nobody new. I mean, we were the first foreigners to come in. And when we came in... <laughs> foreigners. And, uh, well, and that's what they considered us. I mean, we had little page boy haircuts and... We moved, I was I was in fifth grade and yes, the rest of my brothers and sisters, you know, uh, we oh. moved to the Napa Valley back then and and we were foreigners. Everybody else had buzz cuts and they were all farming kids uh, in Saint Helena when no, we got I, there. So I remember I was right behind it. This is funny. So what? So somehow, so your dad got into wine and he he did it. He did it in '66. My dad didn't get into wine. He just did it because he heard this was going to be a, a, a really booming business. Uh, he, or he, was, he was betting on that. But I remember showing up in 73 because I was a junior in high school. You're a sophomore. And I'm with you. I remember that we were, you know, yeah, I, I was an outsider. We were, we, I mean, we, you know, we got totally along. We had kids, friends. Right. Yeah, new kids and all that. But, but you were in fifth grade. That must have been even, you know. What an adjustment, because you came from Southern California, and all of a sudden you're in St. Helena, which, as you were saying, and I'll echo it, well, you were here before me, but yeah, there weren't new wineries, there weren't new people coming in. That was just, you guys were the start of it, and uh, folks came after. You know, and I don't think that my father was trying to do anything revolutionary, and it wasn't, he he was just had a passion to make really great wine and see if they could do that, and, and he wanted to have a business that would be a, a logical, thoughtful business. And one of the parts that was really critical for dad was that he wanted to have a business that we owned 100%. He did not want to have another publicly held business, did not want to have a board of directors, did not want to have any outside influence, and wanted to be able to control it 
and and he ran the business by the seat of his pants. Um, but you know, he had a logical seat of his pants. I mean, your dad and my dad were both very smart and very entrepreneurial, and had really had an interest uh, to kind of do the right thing. And uh, you know, they were both community spirited. Uh, they 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 worked with other people, but they were really outsiders, especially when my dad got there. There was there was nobody, you know, he went and talked to Robert Mondavi, who was at that time just pulling away from the Charles Krug winery mm-hmm. and uh, starting to do his own thing. But that was, you know, we were the second winery after Prohibition to be built in the Napa Valley. Wow. Um, and Robert Mondavi was the first new winery. All the rest were pre-Prohibition wineries that had been reenacted. So uh, it was a, it's kind of a, it was a big, big change. And then, then the, the interesting part of it was that you know, my father got guidance from Andrei Chelichev, who uh, I think the term was that, Don, if I could get more grapes from the hillside, I could make even better wines. So why are you <laughs> looking at valley floor? You need to look, be looking at the hillsides and look at the mountains and see what you can find there. And there were not a lot of vineyards planted in the hillsides. There were very few areas to be able to look at at that time. And so um, it turned out that when my when dad went up to Pritchard Hill on one of the tours with uh, with the real estate brokers, um, he looked out from there and said, "God, this is gorgeous. I could probably could convince Molly to move up here with the kids, and this might be <laughs> might be interesting enough that that it'd be kind of fun." And my mother was pretty much of a city girl, and. Um, and my mom and dad had known each other since they were 14 years old. They met, oh, wow. they met at a horseback uh, riding uh, facility where my dad was training a, a colt. Uh, and the word for my mother was that any person who could be so gentle with this animal who just threw him three times and get back up uh, is somebody that I, get, uh, that I want to get to know. And that was at 14 years old. And I think she just kept hanging out in the barn until he noticed her. So, uh, so <laughs> That's a great so, story. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, yeah, so. so she hung in there. Well, God, dude, you know, your parents were beautiful, beautiful people. Um, but how did he find it's interesting comment you made earlier? Because I was going to ask you about other grape growing areas. Yeah, that that time there weren't other wine grape growing areas that were kind of established and well known. There, they are today. You know, Sonoma and Paso Robles, and on and on and on. But you're right. Back in the mid '60s. Heck, you know, people were still just trying to figure out what fine wine was. I mean, that was just starting. How did your dad find Andrei Chelichev? Because he was, he was the guy. How did he track him down? Well, if you think about it, when, when my dad came up, he was a businessman. He was trying to figure out what would work and what would. And he went and talked to the Sebastianis Sr. He went and talked to, um, of course, uh, the Mondavis and the Mondavis uh, and spoke to Bob. And he went and talked to Joe Heights and some of these people who were there. And uh, during that research uh, that he was researching, he was 33 and 34 years old when he was doing this. Just a kid. Right. And so you, th- you and I think of that that's half of our ages, right? right. So just about. And, um, and he, he basically did it like any businessman would, just try to get as much intel as he possibly could. And during that process, he had been in- introduced to Andre and gotten to know who Andre was. He had some early BV wines in his cellar in Los Angeles, and he knew of the wines that Andre was making. 
So he already knew about who Andre was. And then when he got up there, he met, met with him. And Andre one time said to him, Don, look, you keep coming over here. You keep showing me all these different, <laughs> these different properties that are available. Why don't you show up tomorrow uh, and I have some wines for you to try. And this will help me with giving you uh, some direction on what you should be looking for. And so as the story went, uh, he showed up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something. And Andre had four glasses of wine in the little tasting area there and said, Don, you just try these and I'll be back in a few minutes and we can talk about them. And uh, he, my dad, he said, I want you to know which, which of these wines you choose that you like the best and which you like the least. And my father tasted the wines. He had a pretty good palate at the time. So he tried the wines and he said, I like these wines better than those wines. And Andre came back. They talked about it. And Andre said, this is what I've been telling you. The <laughs> wines you like the best are from my hillside selections uh, that are from barrels that only came from hillside vineyards. I'm telling you that that's what you need. If that's where your palate is, that's what you need to do. And I could make better wines if it just had hillside vineyards. So that was what changed my father's huh. direction from looking at valley floor vineyards to only looking at hillside vineyards. So he looked at the Mike Thomas property. He, right. looked, at some, he looked at some other properties uh, around the valley. And, uh, and that's in Pritchard Hill at that time. And the property that dad ended up buying was the original Pritchard family's property that the that Charles Pritchard in 1863 had come out and purchased for their family's place to get away to and where that they were they moved from upstate Washington excuse me upstate New York to uh, California and bought this piece of property uh, which was 320 acres um, and then within about six months my dad bought the other 350 acres next to us um, also, so our property is a little over 700 acres there that we have. And uh, and we've never sold any, or any property. We've continued to buy little chunks of property over the years. But, um, you know, the objective was uh, to be able to grow grapes. Well, the gentleman who had planted the vineyards, it was not about quality. It was about getting some vineyards there because he was sure that somebody would come by and buy it at some point. So he was really just developing the vineyard as a vineyard development plan. So within the next five years, we started replanting the vineyards. And over the years, everything has been replanted at least once, some areas as many as three times over the last 54 years. And uh, and so it's it's been an ongoing interest. And for the first 25 years, there were no neighbors whatsoever. We had uh, yeah. the first neighbor who planted <laughs> any vineyard up there was uh, David Long. And uh, um, but nobody else had had any other vineyards up there. No, you guys. It was like um, I remember because you know, I came from a suburban town, Chicago. So like you know, just driving from Yountville to St. Helena to school was like it was a long haul. And now it's like it's like what we do all the time. But I remember you know I don't know if I went up to your house or knew where it was, but it was like God, it seemed like it was to hell and gone up this long windy road and past this Lake Hennessy thing, and you know then you go up this long driveway. It's like good. God, what's it like going to school every day in high school? You know, your mom driving these five kids. I mean, yeah, you guys were out in like the boonies and no one knew what Pritchard Hill was. And thanks to you and your family and your quality of wines, everybody knows what Pritchard Hill is today. And you've some with some wonderful neighbors. So, but it was crazy. Yeah. Like you said, it was 25 years. You were, you were the only vineyard out there, right? Right. And 
And I think you're right. I think our mothers need to be given a lot of credit for being the bus drivers during <laughs> yeah. all those years. I'm, I mean, every one of us had a different sports program, and there, was, there were six of us, and they had a different schedule. And the bus would pick us up at the bottom of the hill to take us to school. But after that, as far as in the afternoon and the activities, um, there, were, there were as many as five or six different kids to pick up at different spots that <laughs> had different schedules. And my mother was the consummate bus driver driving that back and forth uh, for, for all those years. Let's, you know, we've covered your folks and your family and Pritchard Hill, but what happened to you after high school? I graduated, you had one more year, and then you graduated. So what, what, was, what was your story? So um, I ended up at Pepperdine for a couple of years and then went to Cal Poly okay. and, went, and went to school at Cal Poly in their uh, farm management program. And um, I always thought it would be great to have a really great big ranch and a big, wonderful place with, you know, herds of bison or cows and and uh, kind of living on the range and uh, probably a little bit like Yellowstone in my view of uh, kind of the Dutton Ranch would be the perfect operation for me if you know the Yellowstone show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and that was in my, in my dream category. Uh, and right after college, I got hired by a... Uh, big oil and insurance company out of Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, I ended up in their corporate planning and development business side of the company where we were basically analysts. And I had to learn how to run numbers and figure out what values companies represented as to whether we should be investing in them or and putting money into them or buying them or whatever for the mm-hmm. company. And so I had a, it was a great experience, uh, really marvelous. I met some amazing people and I learned an awful lot about the finance side of of what the value of the company was and how that was structured which is very different than the uh, b- business courses that I'd been taking at Cal Poly which are much more agriculturally oriented but you know there's an underlying business aspect of all these things that are very critical to what we do now so actually I think that it probably put me in a fairly good position to understand our business from a from a broader perspective prospect than I would have if I had just gone come back come back and and gotten into the business but there was also an underlying level that my father had put in which was that none of us have a right or the company does not have an obligation to take care of any of us or do we have a right to have a job at Chapelet and I think that it's the way that he saw it that if you had enough passion you were going to fight hard enough for it wanted to really be involved with the business then uh, then you better prove that you could do something better than we could hire somebody from the outside to do. And the one place where that fit in for me was, well, my father was a very quiet man and really did not want to get out on the road and did not choose to be on the road. And I was a little more gregarious. And so it was easier for me to get on the road and do that to help him to drive the sales of our business. And so that's where it really started for me when I came back, uh, after being in Florida for about five and a half years. And basically I was uh, his national sales manager yeah. for, for years. And uh, and little by little, I just started getting more and more responsibility and taking over more and more of, 
of the business. Um, one thing that's interesting is my father was never and never chose to be the winemaker for Chapelet. We've always hired winemakers. We started off with Phil Tonier uh, back initially when my father first came here. He was able to hire Phil Tonier away from the winery that he had been working for. My dad really sought out to try to find one of the best winemakers that he could find. And Phil Tonia has a remarkable uh, career of making some incredible wines in the valley. Um, and uh, and my dad hired him to be our winemaker. And then over the years, we've had a lot of other people who have come through, have kind of been the testing ground for a lot of people to learn about the winemaking business. Um, but the one thing that I'm the most proud about of our winemaking is that my current winemaker that we have right now, he's exactly the same age as you and I are, Doug, and he has been with us for 36 years. And so we're not changing winemakers every day. Like you and I both know there's other wineries out here, and every time you turn around, they've got a new winemaker. And no, we've stuck with people who are remarkable, good folks, doing the right thing, and are really dedicated for the long term. And certainly... Uh, Philip Titus is is one of those, and I expect that uh, I hope that he never retires. I hope that we all leave at the same time, whenever that is. Uh, and then, then the other person who's a really really good friend of yours and a guy that you played <laughs> basketball with and actually spent a lot of together time with was Dave Perio. And Dave, Dave Perio has now been with us for thirty five years. I um, I know. Well, you must be doing something right. Um, yeah, Philip Titus. It's been what thirty five, thirty six years with you. Yeah, 37, I think. Yeah, Yeah. which is about the same as Elias. In fact, I think they were pals at UC Davis, I I think. They were in the same crowd. And and I think they still are, actually. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, they're good friends. And Dave Pirio, (laughs) Dave Pirio is your vineyard manager. And I didn't know that for a long time, and I ran into him somewhere. And um, it was just so great to see him after he'd been with you about 10 or 15 years, because I hadn't seen him. So Dave Pirio, everyone, was... uh, in Cyril's class at uh, St. Helena High School. So they were a year behind me. So I'm a senior, and these two young bucks or juniors were all on the varsity basketball team. And Dave Pirio had <clears throat> the best shot, the best outside jump shot in the league. Everybody knew him. I mean, the guy was, he averaged, what he averaged? 20, 20-plus 20 points a game. So he was the offense. And uh, one of the most soft-spoken, gentle guys in the world. And uh, But he was just a killer on you know scoring points but uh and i as i recall i think i was like i wasn't a starter i was like sixth or seventh man so whenever we scrimmaged in practice the coach would pull me aside and said okay you guard perio schaefer you guard perio and i want you to make his life miserable i want you to follow him i want you to trash talk him i want you pulling his pants you know when he goes up to jump you know you know stepping on his toes it was <laughs> cuz cuz that's what happened in games so he wanted to you know and it was tough because dave is the sweetest guy in the world and here i am like beating him up i don't know <laughs> i don't know if you ever knew that was going on but it was pretty it's pretty interesting. Well, I, I feel really fortunate, and Dave is the rock. He is unbelievable. He is unflappable. He is one of the most thoughtful human being, uh, and he has really recreated uh, the redevelopment of Pritchard Hill uh, from our standpoint, and all the new plantings of vineyards and all the science that goes along with it. Uh, as a Davis graduate, uh, he was traditionally uh, 
taught to farm and now we are farming all organically which was not the thing to do back in the 60s but this it is the thing but it is such a right way to have these vineyards long term and and i hate to overuse the word sustainable because everything is talking about sustainability but but the long-term ability to have a better property in the next generation uh, comes from really taking care of the property not denuding it and so i think that he has become uh completely involved with the whole structure of how to farm and how to do things in a sensitive, smart way for the environment and also for the long term so that the vineyard is continued to getting better and better and better. And it's it's really kind of fun to see how that's happened and and it, and it plays out in the quality of the fruit, which makes better wine. There so you go. It's pretty it's- straightforward. And how many how many acres do you guys have up on Pritchard Hill now planted? So we have about 140 acres yeah. of our of vineyard of our own there, and then um, I've put in for a permit uh, now, and we're hopefully going to get that um, qualified and put put through for another 35 acres or so um, up on the hill. We have a lot more land that we could develop. We've chosen to only develop kind of the sweet spots. Right. And the vast majority of our property is hillside and trees and forest and woods. And um, and in this case, what, what we're doing right now is doing everything we can do to clear the understory, the underbrush from our forests and our woods as much as possible um, to protect ourselves from these fires that we've been challenged sure. with over the years. Yeah. So we're just doing what we can do to protect it. And uh, luckily you and I have some of the same friends uh, who have protected our properties <laughs> and our homes and our wineries. And the, the Pinas uh, have have been there and Jimmy Raguchi and some of these guys uh, to help protect us. And I, I don't want to rely completely on them. So I want to make, do is make sure we're doing everything we can do to have our properties be in as best shape as they can be. Oh, that's good to hear. So it's it's a priority. But, yeah, it is. And, and uh, but flashing back to your mom, who's such a great, great lady, and tell me about her uh, book publishing business. She's she's published a few books, hasn't? Is it the one for sure? I think she's published four books, okay. um, and now you're going to challenge me. Uh, but <laughs> a Vineyard Garden was certainly the first one. Uh, then there's Gardens of the Napa Valley, um, and then there's two other ones. There's one about uh, a a cave book that she did, which is quite remarkable. But my mother has got a remarkable eye for uh, for beauty. And uh, she was an art major in college, and uh, and she always had an eye for beauty. But, but I think that the natural beauty that was around her was so impressive when she moved up here that that became part of her liveliness and her excitement. And so she started taking pictures and uh, photographing and then wrote a book about the vineyard garden, which was basically the first 25 years of our life here with some anecdotes and stories and and great pictures in it of of our vineyards and uh, the gardens and all the things that that made her happy. Mm -hmm. The book was very successful. It went on to a second or third printing. And it's pretty timeless. And the the recipes are still great. Uh, uh, And so, so she's continually taking pictures. She's continually... Uh, driven to to add more beauty to the property and and anybody else's property that she can get involved with. Uh, she works with uh, her friend Ellie Coppola kind of endlessly and is always getting calls from Ellie to look at this or look at that and let's see what we can do to to make the Coppola property even more exciting and more interesting. And uh, mom's uh, 
last 54 years in the Valley have really brought her to a level where she's very well respected in that regard. And uh, it's a big part of her life. So yeah, so her, her publishing, I don't think that she did it for the publishing standpoint. I think she did it as a venue of her art right. to have other people understand what she, what she was doing. And um, and, and there, there are great gifts uh, and books that we have given away over the years or people have purchased. So, um, And she's, she, you know, she's still driven, and she's, every day she has a list of things that she wants us to, to do on the property or move or <laughs> re- recreate or do something else. And so she's uh, still very involved, and she's kind of our uh, aesthetic czarina zar- right. uh, right. uh, for what happens on the property. and. Heaven forbid somebody who cuts a tree in the wrong spot, right. uh, or cuts a tree that she shouldn't, that she didn't want cut. So, uh, right. it's yeah. So she's still very involved, and um, she took on a very strong role and has continued to have a strong role on the property. Well, she's helped out with you know the Napa Valley wine auctions for years and things like that. And listening to you talk about it reminded me about um, you know. I'd hate to keep saying, you know, back in the old days and all that stuff. But in the early days, starting out, as you mentioned before, we did. there wasn't direct mail. Um, visitation wasn't a super big deal for wineries. It was there. But the majority of our business was through distributors. But also we did, we would have events. And like the, I'm thinking about the, the wine auction and uh, a couple other things. At each wine we would do things. But... Uh, and also remember, there weren't that many local restaurants. And someone else was in here one time. We were talking about that. And it's like the a lot of the entertaining at wineries were done in the owners' homes um, or at a space at the winery. But he didn't necessarily have a caterer. A lot of times, it was mom was making dinner. I mean, I can remember we had some auction dinners, and they, we didn't have a place at the winery, so it was up at my folks' house and. Dad, or you know, we'd be it'd be uh, 20, 25 people, and mom would have a couple of people come in and help her. But we're basically, you know, eating one of her old casserole recipes or something like that and drinking wine. But you know, your mom and my mom and other gals and, and spouses of uh, just the whole families would, would do the entertaining. It wasn't be, wouldn't be, you wouldn't have your hospitality department or something like that. It'd just be kind of uh, homegrown. It was kind of cool. Different well, time. you know, if you if you think about it, um, there initially there when we first moved to the Napa Valley, there was not a white tablecloth restaurant in the Napa Valley at hmm. all. That's I true. mean, there was Vern's Copper Chimney and a few <laughs> of those things, you know. But um, but there were some remarkable cooks, and the Mandavi family were all great cooks, and all these people. And it was just natural; they would just entertain people in their homes. Mm-hmm. And then the Napa Valley Cooking School was created by uh, the Trefethans, uh, I think Jane Trefethan created right. that. And basically it was ladies and, and wives of vintners who would all get together and they would have Jacques Pepin, they would have the different chefs from around the country who would come and and they were able to attract these amazing chefs to give them classes and, and, and kind of get them excited about cooking because they were the ones having to cook in their own homes. And I think that uh, there's something warm and wonderful about that, and I think that it is something that um, there's no way to uh, go to a restaurant and have the same feeling that there would be being in your home. And, you know, look, you've had a chef for a wife, 
So this is a great <laughs> thing. So you you've kind of cut cut, cut to the chase there to uh, to have a Mars marvelous culinary experience by going to your to your home. And I think that that when somebody has that, and when a distributor or a restaurateur or somebody comes in and you have dinner at your home and you try your lovely wines, it it's a whole different experience. And I and and I'd say that. It is interesting. One thing as you mentioned was our world's changed a lot over the years. When we used to have to go out on the road and do everything and then having distributors come and visit us and restaurants and retailers. And I would the way I put it is that we would never be able to pay off our debt and be able to cover the big expenses by being in the three-tier system at this point in time. Our cost of production is too expensive. Mm-hmm. Our cost of replanting and redoing. So without the direct consumer business, most of us would not be able to stay successful and be able to have this as an ongoing business. It has become a, quote, necessary evil or a necessary benefit. And one of the really cool things about the direct consumer business is we end up having better relationships with that end using customer, right. which which doesn't necessarily happen when it goes through a restaurant or a retailer. Um, it's just a product on a shelf or a brand. But once you're having people onto your property, into your homes, and uh, and you build these long-term relationships, and you know, bringing up to real time and today, in the COVID world, I'll bet you that 30 to 40 percent of the Napa Valley wineries would not be in existence today if they hadn't had the ability to sell direct consumer during this period of time because there's no way that they could have done the things to promote into the restaurants and the other places that they had normally been selling their wines. And so uh, I think that uh, it's an absolute godsend if you did it right. And uh, and it's something that's it's not going away. And we have to be very, very careful about protecting and making sure that we're supporting in the right ways to to protect that business in, in the right ways. And I right. think there's a balance. And that's really the key is how do we have that balance? Well, that's, so. that's why we get up and go to work every day. Um, so that's why we're on all these boards and all these things to try to help make all these things work. And, and, and the thing that you haven't talked about is that the two of you, two of us get to enjoy some time across the table or side by side, uh, on the Napa Valley Vintners board, which I think is, is probably the most important structure in the Valley to support and protect our ability to continue to farm and keep the magicalness of the Valley the way that it is. And I know we both put our hearts into it and, uh, and we have all different opinions on the group, which is the idea. But it's it's been uh, uh, something that I that I, I'm honored to be on their board, and I believe that you are too. And uh, we work hard to do this, and it's, it's another place that we get to visit a little bit from time to time. I know. Every time I get to see you guys is on Zoom. <laughs> That's right. I just, well, this world it is. So and um, so. thank you. No, it's it's uh, it's it's good serving with you. It's it's a good great experience, and it's a great organization for sure. This is the Napa Valley Vintners. But uh, going back to entertaining and significant others and family, I want—I—I have never heard the story about you and your bride, Blakesley. How did you guys meet? When did that happen? Oh well, <laughs> that happened—that uh, happened like twenty-six or seven years ago, actually. And uh, when we first met, and we met basically one hundred percent on a blind date okay. uh, and 
we were so the gentleman who became kind of my best friend who lives in Jacksonville, Florida, and that we met when we were both interns and and then started working for this uh, oil insurance company back in Florida. Um, when I moved back home, I got a call from his mother, who I'd gotten to know, who's a lovely Southern gentlewoman, and she said, hey, are you dating anybody seriously? And I said, well, <laughs> not really. And of course, I was probably about 26 or so at the time, 26 or 7 or something like that. And she said, well, I've got this perfect person for you. And uh, so then evidently she called Blakesley and said the same thing. And she must have said a similar, given a similar answer because uh, before long, uh, we started a telephone conversation back and forth. And uh, I... Uh, invited her to come down to our ranch down in Big Sur, and uh, and our first meeting was uh, down in Big Sur. At that time, she was with uh, Bank of America, and she uh, had a meeting in Salinas at one time when I was down at the ranch. And so she came down, and uh, we met there, and went out to dinner, and dated for quite some time. And uh, then for the next uh, ten or eleven years. Uh, didn't hear a hide or hair about her or anything else. So we, uh, we went our own directions and she emailed me, you know, 10 or 11 years later, whatever it was. And, uh, said, I'm, I'm going to veil. And I see that you're one of the guest speakers at a wine event that's there. <laughs> and I didn't want to just be in the audience without letting you know. And I oh, said, well, nice. uh, so that's how we rekindled. And since then we've been together all ever since. All right. Um, so that's, that's how we got to know each other. And so, so those blind dates can be dangerous. She's a lovely woman, and she's involved a lot with you and your business, but also locally. I mean, what I think she's on the clinical lay board. What else? She's, she's doing everything. I see her name all over the place. Yeah, no, she's, uh, a, she's a very, very smart marketing mind, and she really understands how to... Uh, to make things work in a positive way for the community. And I think that, that she's really dedicated to, uh, to clinical lay for sure, which is where your dad dedicated a high percentage of his life to helping to support the needs of the uh, migrant worker originally and making sure that we had ability to take care of our vineyard workers at a high level and with, with really high quality medical care. And, and your dad, uh, dedicated a high percentage of his life and if it hadn't been for you taking over the winery and really managing the winery stuff i doubt your dad could have continued to spend so much time and effort to help with uh that underserved part of the community that 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 he really made it his life and so so i think blakesley's taking that on with the same gusto uh and uh and structure that your father did she's also on the sandland hospital board also um and so uh, at a time like this, with the COVID being what it is and all the other issues that are happening medically, um, it's uh, it's lovely to get some insight from her as to what's really happening right, right. <laughs> as to what no, that is. So, yes. She's uh, she's awesome. She's uh, a ball of fire. So, glad she's doing it. Um, and then something I I'd remember, but I'd totally forgotten about. In 2011, you guys bought uh, another winery, Sonoma, Sonoma Loeb. Tell me about, what's that story? Because I, I never heard... The, the background on that one well it's kind of interesting um that in 1990 uh a gentleman ambassador john loeb uh showed up at the winery and he came to talk to philip uh and we had just hired philip in that same year basically to become the winemaker full-time after kathy corson left 
And John Loeb had asked Philip if he'd be willing to make some wines. He, uh, John Loeb really liked our wines and said, you know, I, if you make these good wines for Chapley, you can make a good wine for me. I've got some vineyard up in Sonoma. Would you be willing to make some wine? So we custom made wine for Ambassador Loeb for, I don't know, 12, uh, 12 14 years, something oh, like okay. that, that. We were custom, custom making all the wine for him. And he got to a point where uh, one day he called Philip and said, hey, would you want to buy uh, Sonoma Loeb from me? <laughs> and, uh, and would you like to have the ability to market and sell in, in this wine? Because it, it's it's really good. Da, 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 da. And Philip goes, well, I know it's good. I'm the, I've negotiated all the grapes. I've done all the stuff. I've been managing, managing the production side of it for years. Uh, so I know how good the wines are. And Philip said, you know, I'm just in the process right now of building a new winery with my brother and myself. And uh, the last thing we need to do is get a bunch more debt and uh, build some more structure there. So he basically uh, basically passed, but he also said, let me see if uh, Cyril would be willing to uh, take take it under the, under the Chapelet umbrella and be willing to deal with it. And so we talked about it, and uh, we knew where all the wine was being sold. We knew how the wine was being sold. We knew the quality of it. And we thought, oh, this will be a good adjunct to us. And so we basically um, made a licensing agreement because he wanted to keep the name because it was his own name. Right. And he basically made a licensing agreement. So we owned all the product and we made all the product and sold all the product uh, throughout the country and have continued doing that. Um, and, and are doing it to this day. Um, and it's been, it's been interesting. Um, it's been challenging from the standpoint that uh, that it's not Chapelet and my sales guys are going out and selling a wine that doesn't have a Chapelet name on it. And even though we tell the story and all the rest, uh, it's it's harder to sell than it is to sell the Chapelet wines. Sure. And we've learned that. So it's it's been interesting. Uh, it I don't see it as a great big growth potential thing. And uh, but we've we've continued to, to work it and work it well and it's been it's been successful for us uh and uh i think if we were to do something like that again we wouldn't do it without owning the assets and right. owning the uh certainly owning the uh the, the name but also probably wouldn't do it as a virtual winery probably would do it with bricks and mortar if we were looking at that and my belief is honestly doug that there's going to be some terrific opportunities in the next two or three years and there are some coming about right now uh for any of us who are established brands who would want to grow and want to want to build and be able to take on other established brands uh, to do that. And with the structure that we already have within our businesses and with the accounting programs and with the marketing and the sales teams and all the rest, um, we probably are in a pretty good position to be able to take advantage of those things. So I think there are going to be opportunities, whether we choose to get involved with those and get involved with other things or not, um, those opportunities are going to come about. So, um, you know, we're watching and we'll see what happens. I, yeah. I, I, I have no plans on anything right now, but I just see properties coming available and, uh, and people are finding out that it's not as a hobby business, it's challenging. And the one difference is you and I, don't take this on as a hobby. It's what we do every, every day, all day long. No, oh, it's uh, so. it's the it's the full Monty, without a doubt. Um, and so these days, you're you're chairman, but you know when my dad became chairman, like you said, he spent most of his time working for philanthropic um, causes, which was great. And uh, 
which was great for him and us, and it also freed me up to run the business. So it was a, it was a good move. But I don't think you as chairman is the same way. What's your, I think you're pretty much, you're still running the thing every day, right? Day-to-day duties? Yeah, I know. Our chairman position was a position that was held by my father, and uh, and then my father uh, bequeathed it to me, by, uh, but also with the board's approval. And the board are mostly family members. We've got Jack Daniels, who's on the outside, a friend of yours, a guy right. you've known forever, uh, who uh, worked for us years and years ago and had built a very successful company uh, here in the Valley. And uh, so he's on our board as an outside board member. I'll probably put another two board members on in the next year or so um, from the outside. Uh, and um, what I'm trying to do is, is stay at 30,000 feet more. Uh, I now have a managing director who's just a remarkable guy doing a phenomenal job, uh, David Frankie, uh, who's now working for us also. And he's alleviated me to have a little bit of more flexibility, but I still hold the position of chairman of the board and president of the company. Uh, my brother, Dominic, is vice president of the company. My sister is executive secretary and uh, Carissa. So the three of us work for the company all the time and our, mm-hmm. our agreement is that there will be somebody on the Chapelet property at all times so that there's one of the family members who is there um, to answer questions or deal with issues or whatever so right now Dominic is there I'm I'm actually talking to you from Sun Valley Idaho um, and we're uh, where we have been uh, during the last uh, since Thanksgiving now and um, and it's uh a little bit safer with COVID being what it is in the Valley. And, uh, and I think that I can run the company pretty successfully from right here. I was on a zoom call all morning, uh, this morning with my team, which I do every Monday morning just to kind of see where everybody is. Right. Uh, but, but I no, I oversee all of it and, and run all of it. And I don't, I would not say that I'm doing every bit of the work because I got lots of people who are way better than I am at doing all the day-to-day stuff. And so, you know, the vineyard stuff is all overseen by Dave. And um, my job is to support him and make sure that he has the assets and the structure and the financial ability to do what he needs to do with the winery run by Philip. If he needs new new or more barrels or more tanks or more equipment, um, that's up to me to figure out how to make that happen on that side. But he's making those choices. And uh, same thing with all of our management teams. So, so I'm, I've got to be the biggest cheerleader and the, the biggest advocate for driving the company. That's kind of right. what I see myself right. as, as at this point in time. Doesn't, um, it, so. doesn't it drive you crazy, these winemakers? You no, know, especially when you got a really good one like you and I have, you know, and it's like they keep making great wines, great wines, great wines. And, you know, they come in and say, well, it's time to buy this or it's time to buy that. And it's like in the old days, you'd kind of have a conversation, kind of like, do we really need to spend that much money for that? I mean, is it really going to make the difference where now it's like, okay, go ahead and buy it. <laughs> do you find yourself in the same position? It's like, what are you going to do? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a funny little story that, that happened a few years ago. Um, we had just done some major revamping. We built a whole new barrel building uh, there, and, and all of us have done this over the years, right? You build, you do some major upgrade of some type, and uh, and we had just done a bunch of stuff, bought a bunch of new equipment and everything else, and um, Philip and I were giving a tour to an investment banker guy um, who was a big 
um, a big fund manager, but loves our wines. And we were giving him a tour, and Philip says to him, this is so terrific. I have all the newest gadgets. I have all the newest equipment. It is, you know, we've just revamped <laughs> everything. And, and Chapelet has is, is, been so good to me. And I said, it's so great. I'm not going to need anything else. Um, I've just, I've got this wired. So for years, I'm not going to need anything else. And I reminded him this morning when we had a budget meeting that I said, you know, Philip, he goes, no, that I, I've, I, I never make that mistake again because uh, <laughs> things are wearing out. And, and the nice thing about what Philip has done for us is, is he did put together a five-year budget. And he said, you know, this piece of equipment, this optical sorter that's really, really cool and the state of the art right now, it's going to wear out over the next four to five years. So in four years, I need to need to get another one right, of those. Right. And in, in three years, I'm going to need to get another one of these. And, and I'm going to need a couple more small blending tanks. Uh, and so, so these things continue on. And, and he was laughing about it. He goes, I, I will never tell you that I'm done because... <laughs> You know, and then then we look at the vineyard development. Oh, look at what the expense of vineyard oh, yeah. development yeah, is yeah. now, and yeah, so we got that. And, and so I'm you know, and, and then the redevelopment. So we replant five acres or so of vineyard every single year right. out of the 140 acres, and then this next two years, we're going to be trying to put in another 30 or 35 acres of of new vineyard, and and that's going to be predicated upon water, really. I mean, frankly. Um, the with the issue of having such so little water this last year and coming forward that if we don't get substantial water we'll have to keep putting that off um as far as the replanting we'll develop it and put pull it together but but right. seeing these budgets on a three and five year period of time uh is gives me the reality is that uh you and i still have to do our day job to keep this thing going so that we can keep funding uh all these projects that need to move on in order so that the next generations have have right. even a better business. You right. Know? And, right. And I think that that's part of our dedication now is to, uh, you know, make sure that we have a structure that this business is really solid from every single level, from the brand level, from the financial level and from the environmental level so that these businesses can be taken over by uh, our nieces and nephews uh, or your children in that right. case. Um, to if if they're interested and and that they have the de- dedication to do it exactly, and uh, and speaking of generations in in sixteen it was tough we lost your dad that was a tough time for you I know that um, I was thinking about it the other day what do you think what do you think his legacy is because he was a quiet man but he was so successful but his legacy for just not just Chapelet but for the Napa Valley any any ideas on that one. I don't know. He was. I think your point is right. He was. He is such a a quiet and soft spoken uh, person that never wanted to be in the limelight and never wanted to do. But he wanted to quietly help where he could. You know, I would think that his development of Pritchard Hill and what Pritchard Hill is uh, will be part of the legacy right. that he that he created and. Uh, you know, and and my job is to protect that and to carry on with that in, in the right way. And I think that um, you know, my job also is to find the next uh, family members or staff and employees who are going to help to to keep that uh, going and keep that in the right direction. Because um, you know, we, we're blessed with having this remarkable piece of property and. As I said earlier, we're just really caretakers uh, of, of this. So I'd say that him, my father building the foundation and the structure for it, you know, it's also, as both of us have the same burden, it's our last names. Yeah. It, 
it doesn't it doesn't go away and it's, it's basically um and i i i'm use this term all the time it was it was dad's dream it's my reality uh-huh. um and i think that that to me is 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 very real but the way i see this is that he's the one who had all the risk and i'm sorry to say doug your dad and you guys have had all of the risk that's not the next generation there will be other risks that will come about but the fact of the matter is i don't think it's justifiable fair or or right for any of them to capitalize on the risk and the toil and the and the stress and the challenges that their forefathers have have put in so it's our job to take care of it and manage it and to drive it in the right way uh, that protects it for the long term um, and uh, and it's not our job to capitalize on it and take the funds out of the thing because you know you could and uh, and I think the more the American way is once it becomes really valuable it gets sold and uh, and I don't see it that way at all I see it as as a much longer term and a much more of a European model of um, how do we keep this for generations and make this work for generations even if it has to skip a generation or two so my hope is that that really becomes my dad's legacy is that we've lived out his dream for him which was to take on a family business not a family empire, not a family castle or, or, or whatever. This is really about a, uh, a wonderful, terrific industry and business that we've dedicated ourselves to. So I, th- I would say that that was probably dad's legacy, if that could be yeah. put into it. And I don't know how you put that into words. but No, I, I so. think he, he did a great job. He was, he was a super guy. So t- talk to me about what you guys are making. What are you guys making varietal-wise these days? You started out with Cab Chard and Chenin Blanc, I think. And, uh, so I think that, are they still yeah, around? Was, you got more? What there you were, got? Yeah, there were a few other things, that, weird things that happened over the years. We actually made some Sangiovese for a while. We actually made a Johannesburg Riesling. Johannesburg Riesling was actually grown on the property here for at one period of time. And then, um, and then we some Sangiovese trying to follow the trends and, and because Sangiovese right. seemed like it was a hot thing to do for a while. Um, we, I'd say our, our tone is very different. Uh, I say that, that our tone is really doing what grows best on Pritchard Hill on, on our property and, and making that remarkable and then go find the clients for it. We really can never get ahead of the trend well enough to, to design a wine that is for a group of people what we have to do is design our wines and build our wines for what we can do the best as possible and then find the right clientele for it so so cabernet is number one no question about it on pritchard hill but we have all five bordeaux varietals that we have planted there and then the other the only white grape that we have on pritchard hill is we have a small three and a half acres of chenin blanc that we still make that's great i love it it's just lovely and it's it's just a beautiful wine and we kind of do it and it says Molly on it, so it says my mom's oh, name on good. it. You have to look on the back label to even see that it says Chenin Blanc. It comes <laughs> in kind of a tall, long, uh, dead leaf green uh, Riesling bottle uh, and uh, beautiful package. Uh, and it's just this gorgeous wine that's, that's just terrific. And so, so from Pritchard Hill, it's all about Cabernet, really, and mm-hmm. besides the Chenin Blanc, and that's what we dedicate ourselves. But we have done something we call our grower collection, and the grower collection are wines that we're getting from Sonoma. And this really started okay. from the Sonoma Low Project, and this is, we're doing a Pinot Noir and a Chardonnay and a Viognier, 
Um, and they are very site specific and they're from particular vineyards uh, that are, uh, so we get some grapes from Calesa, which is a vineyard that Renneria runs okay. overseas. And it's just unbelievable. It's in the Petaluma Gap. So for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, it's just a staggering wine. And it really comes out from a dedication of to our winemaking team. If they find something, if Philip finds something that's so terrific that he says, hey, I could do something really exciting with this, and we'll make a small amount of it for our club or for the... Because we have to have enough to feed the DTC market of our, of our own stuff. So in the national market, the wines that are out there are some Chardonnay that does come from Sonoma and comes from our grower collection. And then our, our Mountain Cuvée, which is our entry-level wine, our signature Cabernet and our Pritchard Hill. And those are the wines that go to the national market. The, the, uh, the Pinot Noirs and the, uh, and the other Chardonnays and the Viognier are wines that are club-oriented. And then we do several different blends of Cabernet and different um, items that we do from, uh, from Pritchard Hill. And we have a new wine that we've put together, which is our hideaway. And it kind of straddles a position between our Pritchard Hill Cabernet and our, um, and our signature Cabernet. And that's um, from the vineyards that is right next to Blakesley in my house. Okay. Um, and it's this 15-acre block of vineyard that is right between Colgan and, um, and Continuum. Okay. And, and it's um, mostly grapes that would have gone into our Pritchard Hill Cabernet. But, um, matter of fact, you are probably more a part of this than you'll know because <laughs> when you've dedicated a high percentage of your life to helping with raised funds for the bake sale of the Napa Valley Vintners, which we call Premier Napa Valley. Right. And um, in doing that, one of the things that you asked to be done early on was to make unique blends or make unique wines that were not available in the national market. So we basically were doing that to support uh, Premier and we were making these kind of fascinating Cabernets and they were typically 100% Cabernet and we'd make a barrel or the 10 cases or five cases that we had to make for it. And then the clients several years later would come back and say, hey, have you tried that wine recently? That wine is staggering. That's really beautiful. And through that, I went back to Philip and said, hey, Philip, it's really nice making all this wine for Doug and his little fundraiser (laughs) charity thing. And this is and all this stuff that we're doing there. And it's nice to give all this stuff away. But could we do any of it commercially? And he goes, well, of course, it's from the vineyard right next to your house. We could, you know, we could just take a little more of that and and make a wine out of it. Good success story. I love it. Yeah, that's how those things happen, you know. And so so anyway, long and short of it, the, the hideaway is is a staggering beautiful wine and um and we call that our um our our mountain estates program and um little different label um but it still has the feel of chapelet and all the rest but slightly different label and uh so i i I would never say never we're always looking for interesting exciting things or and I'd, i'd say that whatever we can do to to test and excite the winemaking team and challenge Dave to grow better grapes, that's kind of our goal. That's right, kind of right. our, our job. And if we do that, well, then we have to go out and find the market for it, right? Mm-hmm. And find the right people yeah. who want to buy that wine. And so um, 
I, I think that's those are the big things that are happening for us going forward, and I don't see that changing very much uh, in the near future. Um, I see that just continuing on as uh, as as we go forward, and so that's the excitement on the, on the plan. And uh, what I should do is get you a little stash of all these wines, and I'll call Erica to see how we could drop off some of those wines so you can see what we're talking about and so you can actually well, try them. Um, that would be great. Thank you. But don't send it all to me so we can save some stuff to have together at some point, whether it's sooner or later. If it's later, we'll be side by side. If it's sooner, we can we can go out to a park bench somewhere. <laughs> I'd like that. <laughs> Where can people find your wine? What's your, is your website? Is what, that's the place to go? So if you're around the country, uh, you can find it fine, fine wine retailers around the country. No question about that. And, and we are distributed throughout the whole country. Um, and the best way is to go to our website. Uh, and you can get virtually all of our wines through our website. Uh, and that's chapelet.com, www.chapelet.com. Uh, and uh, you can get to our website and find the wines. And so any of the wines that we talked about today and uh, um, are available there. And, uh, and you can always call me. My, I'm very accessible, uh, and I'll, I'll help with that too. So, uh, you know, we're a family business, and we're planning on doing this for a long time. So uh, buy it directly from us. And if, you're, if we can find it for you closer to you, uh, we can, we'll help, happy, happy to help you do that too. So, All right, um, man. Cyril, thanks so much for taking the time. It was great to catch up with you and hear some of these uh, stories that I have not heard yet. So appreciate the time. Doug, my, my absolute pleasure. And I hope that whoever listens to these podcasts doesn't get too bored with a bunch of old guys talking to them as they're driving in and out of their commutes or anything else. But uh, it was fun doing it with you. And, and any time that we can do this, you're a, a great commentator and it really works. All right, man. Take care and we'll see you. Okay, we'll, see you. we'll see you somewhere. Okay. So, see you. Yep, bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was fun catching up with Cyril. Hope you enjoyed that and feel like you got a good behind-the-scenes look at running a great family business here in the Napa Valley. The Chapelets make terrific wines and have had a big positive impact on the valley. If you get a chance to track down some of the wines we talked about today, you won't be disappointed. And before I sign off, a reminder about our upcoming episode. We'd love to get your questions, whatever you want to talk about in the world of wine. Send them to podcast at schafervineyards.com. And if you want to help support the podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.